Always thinking about all the younger years There was only you and me We were young and wild and free Now nothing can take you away from me We've been down that road before But that's over Revelation 21 Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. For the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. He said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give water without cost from the spring of the water of life. Those who are victorious will inherit all this, and I will be their God, and they will be my children. But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexual immoral, those who practice magic arts, the adulterers, and all liars, they will be consigned to the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. The new Jerusalem, the bride and the lamb of the lamb. One of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues came and said to me, come, I'll show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a mountain great and high. And showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. It shone with the glory of God, and its brilliance was like that of a very precious jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with twelve gates, and with twelve angels at the gates. On the gates were written the names of the twelve tribes of Israel. There were three gates on the east, three on the north, three on the south, and three on the west. The wall of the city had twelve foundations, and on them were the names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. The angel who talked with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city, its gates and its walls. The city was laid out like a square, as long as it was wide. He measured the city with the rod and found it to be 12,000 stadia in length, as wide and, and as wide and high as it is long. The angel measured the wall using human measurements, and it was 144 cubits thick. The wall was made of jasper in the city of pure gold, as pure as glass. The foundations of the city's walls were decorated with every kind of precious stone. The first foundation was jasper, the second sapphire, the third agate, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth ruby, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth turquoise, uh, the eleventh jacinth, and the twelfth amethyst. The twelve gates were twelve pearls, each gate made of a single pearl. The great city of this the great street of the city was of gold, as pure as transparent glass. I did not see a temple in this city because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives its light, and the Lamb is its lamp. The nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their splendor into it. On no day will its gates ever be shut, for there will be no night there. The glory and honor of the nations will be brought into it. Nothing impure will ever enter it. Nor will anyone who does not, who does what is shameful or deceitful, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life. Thanks, Spencer. That was really long, I know. Um, one of the most amazing things 
uh, I gathered from Steve Jobs' biography is that when he invented the iPhone and the iPod and all of the amazing devices that came out of it, do you know he did no market research? As he proposed these um, inventions to his team, a lot of people on the team were like, shouldn't we go gauge what the culture wants and see if this is going to work? And he said, no, 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 no. We're not going to ask them what they want. We're going to teach them what they want. And he proved to be right. What do you, what do you, what do you want out of life? What do you really hope happens in your life and what do you need to come? I mean, some of us demand that it be epic. Uh, others of us just hope it's not too hard. And then some of us even feel like already it's hard and we may even have thought we want it to just already end. And wherever you are on that spectrum, I mean, all of those feelings suggest that you deep down know there is something incomplete about our, our experience and we need something done about it. And what do you want? John is telling you, I know what you want. I'm going to tell you what you want. It's for heaven to come. He says there in verse one, it's coming. That heaven is coming. And heaven coming, it, be, it means three things for us. Heaven coming means this world matters. It means your life is going to be okay. And it means wisdom starts with the ending. Here's what I mean. First, heaven coming here means this world matters. Look, if you go back to the first slide, in verse 1, uh, it says, Look, I saw the holy city coming down out of heaven. Now, most people talk about heaven like we're going to go up to the clouds. Um, but the Christian view of heaven that we're told here in this verse is that it's not so much that we're going up to heaven, but that heaven is coming down here. In fact, heaven is never talked about and understood in the Bible without it immediately being connected to something about in this world. Uh, Anglican Bishop uh, N.T. Wright, he says this, he says, the early church never talked about going up to heaven when somebody died. And if they did, they taught that heaven was a temporary stop on the way to the new heavens and the new earth. Now, what verse 2 and N.T. Writer is saying is, look, this image that we talk about in our heads of like, well, you die and you sort of float off to this unknown experience. And that's what the afterlife is. No, 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 no. If anything, the Bible sort of says, when you die, you go, your spirit goes to be with God. But the ultimate view of heaven is that it is going to be a physical experience that comes here into this world. And what John has been communicating this whole semester to us is that there's a veil between our experience and the way God is actually redeeming this world right now around us. And what heaven is, is that the final removal of that veil will make the two one, heaven and earth one. And the implications of that give us like almost two dynamics, an A and a B. Like one, it sort of means heaven, it will, it will actually remake this whole world. So in the first couple of verses, let me show you what I mean of this. It says in verse one, um, the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. And then in verse four, it says, uh, the former things have passed away. It's talking about 
uh, the, the broken experience that we live in now. Uh, and then in verse five qualifies it this way. Behold, I am making all things new. John is emphatically telling us that heaven, it'll, it will be different from our experience in this world because the healing that's going to come is going to be so powerful. It will make the experience here in this world unrecognizable. Um, I grew up in this city, Chattanooga in Tennessee. And interestingly enough, in, I think it was 1984, uh, Time Magazine ruled it the ugliest city in America. Uh, it had, uh, so I think, the worst pollution, nothing strikingly beautiful about it. And uh, they had an article calling it the worst, ugliest city in America. Uh, I think it was 1991, uh, this really rich guy who used to own Coca-Cola uh, decided to build an aquarium in downtown Chattanooga. And people were like, why would you build it there? That, that city is horrible. And he said, just watch what happens. And he built that city and uh, he built that aquarium. And what happened to that city is slowly around the aquarium, people started to build restaurants and then coffee shops. And then nice housing started to go up and then they started to remake old structures. And then in 2015, Chattanooga was considered one of the top 20 most beautiful cities in the world. It's the same place, the same city had been remade in such a way it was almost unrecognizable. And heaven is going to be remade in such a way that it will be in this world, but it's going to be so remade that almost our experience will not be uh, known to anyone who ever lived in it. I mean, some more examples. He says the sea will be no more. It doesn't mean there's not going to be an ocean. The, the sea, remember, in the ancient Near East is an untamable reality, represents chaos, our worst fears. And it says there, there will be no more chaos. And he says, I will wipe away every tear. There'll be no more mourning. Uh, there will never be any more sadness. It says death will be no more in verse four. I mean, the, the greatest taboo in our culture, it, it will really be over. The hardest, the worst things of this world will be gone to the point that the, the, the painful life might, may have a hard time recognizing that this is the same place because of how much it's going to be changed. But heaven coming here, it also means there's going to be a continuation of this world. Because we're not only told that heaven's coming down here, but we're told the great things of this world will enter into it. Look in verse 26. He says to the kings of this earth, he's going to look and say, think with the glory and art of the nations we brought in by the kings. It's as if God's going to look at some of the wonderful things in this world and say, bring that in with you. Like some of the greatest things in our life are described heavenly or almost heaven because they are. Heaven is going to be very materialistic and, and very similar to some of your parts, some of parts of your life here. I mean, to think that heaven is like this floating experience that we almost can't understand and anticipate is an anti-Christian thought, denying God's good creation and saying that this world is so garbage. There's no, there's no reason to not think that heaven will not be very similar to a lot of the wonderful experiences of your life here and now. Now, those two implications that heaven is going to be totally different and then heaven is going to be very similar, it just means this. This world matters. What you're doing 
in this life right now, it really matters. Look, when, when, um, when it's Christmas time and it's gotten a little bit better over the years, my kids would, you know, make presents for my wife. And I mean, the idea of, of them wrapping a present, you know, was essentially like taking something, uh, wrapping it up in a ball, putting a piece of tape on it to where two thirds of the present is like still sticking out of it. But they, their heart was that they wanted to do something for their mom. And so I just sort of took their presence and, and I didn't go, that's horrible. Go redo it until it's perfect. No, I took what they had done. And I just said, you know what, I'll, dad will finish that. Because it, it, I love, I really admire and appreciate what you're doing. Look, the things that the kings are bringing here are things that are already being attempted to be healed. It's as if God is going to look at some of the things that we try to do in this world, or we're trying to heal it and bring heaven, that's almost a child attempt to wrap a present. And he's going to take it and just say, you know what, hand me that and I'll finish it. Look, this world matters. And everything that you do now in this world, that's a little attempt to bring heaven. You know, God may take that and finish it. It may prosper for a hundred million years. Like it was a beautiful Christmas present to a mom that you began to wrap up and the father just took it and finished it. Look, this world matters. And if you will give some of your life to it for the healing of it, you may see seeds of that blossom millions of years from now. Heaven coming here means this world matters, but it also means you're going to be okay. Look, why does the future give you so much anxiety in life? Like, why are you always so pessimistic about how uh, you know, new things may come in your life? I mean, we get nervous about new environments. Like, am I gonna be ready? Will people accept me? Will I make the right decision with some of these things? I mean, you know why we're worried? It's because we're aiming at this world, which never promises you that we will be okay. But heaven does. The best way for me to show you this is just examine some of the very odd details in this text. I mean, at first glance, when you read uh, this passage, it sort of suggests that there's a bride, and then there's God going to meet the bride, and then there's a city uh, that this bride is going to dwell in. But that's not how you read the text. If you go back to verse 2, we're told that the bride is the city. It says, I saw the bride coming down prepared as a city. And then again in verse 9, what it, we're told is that he says, I will show you what the bride is like. And then he begins to describe a city in verses 10 forward. So what you have are all of these descriptions of what seems like where what heaven will be like, like streets of gold or uh, the walls will be like this. That's not describing the physical measurements of or, or descriptions of heaven. It's a description of what you will be like in heaven. And you know what it says about you? It says, uh, well, first of all, it says you, you'll be beautiful. Look in verse 11, it says, "In shown with the glory of God, it's brilliance. It was like that of a very precious jewel, like jasper, clear as crystal. And then in verse 18, it starts to talk about these other jewels. 
And then in verse uh, 21, it says, the streets were made of gold. So those jewels were uh, stones that were on the plate for the high priest that he would have to wear when he went into the Holy of Holies. And uh, what this is suggesting is that at the moment of heaven, you will be unimaginably beautiful. You will never, ever, ever struggle with your identity again. You will never, ever, ever question your physical identity. You will never question your emotional identity. You will never question your personality. That all the things that you're wondering, am I attractive? Am I acceptable? Those stones were worn by the priest to be presentable in the most holy, unacceptable place ever. And God says, the moment you step into heaven, every one of you that believes will be clothed in that unimaginable beauty. And then it also says that you'll be given an unbelievable relational life. In verses 16 and 17, you get these weird measurements, 12,000 stadia uh, in length, as wide, as high as it is long. And in verse 17, a wall measuring 144 cubits thick. It's a perfect cube. By the way, that's the uh, measurement of the tabernacle. And what it's suggesting to you is that uh, this is not physical data, again, measuring the walls of heaven, but it's enhancing your immensity and security. Meaning at the moment of heaven, you're going to be escorted into a mass of people and you will never be alone and you will never be worried about being accepted and liked in this group of people. I mean, it's not just saying that there's going to be people there never threatening you to be isolated or lonely, but it also means the people who will be there will be the most inviting, the most welcoming, the most friendly, the most intimate friends you've ever had. And you will be ushered into it, never left out, never picked on, never left apart. But then it also says that you uh, will be fulfilled. Look, in chapter 22, it talks about the tree of life, which is the Bible ending where it began. And it says the fruit comes from there once a month. There will never be a time in heaven where the joys that you experience come back to you empty. In philosopher Jean-Paul Sartre, he once said, everyone, no matter who you are, comes to a point in life where you say, even if Shakespeare, even if Beethoven, is that all that there is? But in heaven, we will say, this is it. You will never try anything. You will never experience anything and go, it was, it was good. But it, it, it wasn't what it was cracked up to be. Everything will be as it's cracked up to be. Now, if you knew all of those realities were held out for you, I promise you would despair a lot less today. And don't you see how heaven will transform not just simply your future, but also your present? And, and this is really crucial for you to understand as a USC student, either staying or leaving. Because so many people turn to Christianity in times of problems and get frustrated when it doesn't work. That is, it doesn't immediately fix your problems. And so they go back to their life with God or they go back to life without God. But here's what the experience misses. 
The essence of these things, the essence of faith is a future reality, not a tomorrow quick fix. It will come. It's saying you will be beautiful. It's saying you will have the perfect community. It's saying you will be utterly fulfilled. And so what you do is you live today confident that those promises are coming, no matter what experiences you're going through, knowing that even the worst life that you can have, Teresa of Avila said, it will one day only seem like a bad night in an inconvenient hotel. See, heaven right now will calm your soul to know it's going to be okay. You're going to be okay. Heaven, it, it really means this world matters. It means you're going to be okay. But it also means wisdom starts with the ending. I heard a story about a competition in, in Florida with one of those outdoor mazes that uh, they uh, held, held a competition for a $100,000 prize of the first group to make it through one of those human mazes. And they all sat at the starting line and one of them, uh, they, they sounded the horn and everybody took off in a dead sprint. But one team didn't run. They sent somebody uh, back up to some sort of ladder and they walked back up. And what they did is they went up and they looked at the entire maze and they saw the, where the end was and they mapped their way back and they spent about 15 minutes doing this and they went down and showed their team what to do and then they went in and won the $100,000 competition. And the way that they won is they started with the ending and then worked their way back and that's exactly how you do life with wisdom. Look, look what the beginning of this text says. In verse three, it says, he will dwell amongst us. And then in verse 22 and verse 23, it says, I did not see a temple in the city because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it for the glory of God gives its light and the Lamb is the lamp. I mean, there will be no temper, temple, which is the center of Israel. And there's no sun or moon, which is the center in the beginning of the creation account. And what's fascinating about those two things is that these are the first things created for the world and then for God's people to be in the center of it and to rule over it. And what we're being told is, is that the most central things in life, the most significant things of life, all they are, are sign pointers to something else to come. Because the essence of heaven is just going to be with, being with God. Is that God's presence will be a completion of everything in this world. And heaven will make you see what John is seeing now. That everything in life has been pointing to him. That all life is, is its previews. Everything that you're doing. Every relationship, every longing, every desire every hope, every wish, every purpose, it's all a preview and God himself is the premier. Jonathan Edwards in his essay, the end for which God created the world said it this way, God is the highest good for the reasonable creature. The enjoyment of him is our purpose and is the only happiness with which our souls can be satisfied. To go to heaven 
fully to enjoy God is infinitely better than the most pleasant accommodations here. It's better than fathers and mothers. It's better than husbands and wives. It's better than children or the company of any and all of our friends. These are but shadows. But the enjoyment of God is the substance. These are but scattered beams, but God is the sun. These are but streams, but God is the fountain. These are but drops, but God is the ocean. And see, if you began to understand that, that would so radically transform what you aimed at doing in this world, what you thought the purpose of your life was, what you thought you were going to get out of it, what you thought you needed to get out of it. If you knew that all of this was shadows and God is the substance, that all of this are scattered beams and God is the sun, you know what you would do? You would go through life utterly carefree, laughing at every joke, burdenless. And you know what you do that is you start with the ending. Look, life is best lived backwards. Don't you wish you could go back to yourself in like high school or something else and like a younger age and just go, it's, it's going to be okay. Like, just live it this way. Don't take this so seriously. Don't spend all your time this way. Spend it this way. These people are not worth it. These people are. Look, the promise of heaven frees you up to do that now, to start with the ending, because heaven says it's going to end this way. This is what's coming. And the certainty of knowing that it's coming, no matter how passionate you are for it, this is the beauty of the gospel of heaven. It is not for those who are fervent. It is for those who are thirsty and those who are in need. And God says, I will fulfill that thirst and give you this. And to the degree that you want that is to the degree you will be set free in this world to be wise and to live it the way it's meant to be lived. I'll close with this. David Wilcox, this folk artist, has a song where he says, you know, maybe the best way to do a relationship is to break up first. Because all you do when you're dating is you like say things and dress certain ways and act certain ways so people don't break up with you. And you just live in just total fear that every action or thing you could say is gonna have them break up with you. So maybe we should just break up with them first. And that would totally let us like be who we wanna be. And then he starts saying in the song, well, maybe we should do this with everything. Like what if we went to college, not when we were 18, but when we're like 70? That we didn't waste it all on like staring at YouTube and like drowning in social media and worried about all these what people think of us. We were like, hey, wouldn't it be cool if I actually studied and looked? I didn't do this to get good grades. I just studied to learn this stuff. And then he starts suggesting, maybe what if we did all of life this way? Like, what if we we started with the ending and worked our way backwards? Maybe, maybe it would just go better. And then he says this in the chorus. He says, you know, if you do this with all these relationships, you might be set free. Because if you start with the ending, there's no pretending. The truth is safe to say. Start with the ending. Get it out of the way. Because then there's no defending. No one has to win. Start with the ending. 
It's the best way to begin. Heaven frees you up in life to start with the ending. Go set yourself free. Take your life back. This is what you want in life. Go give yourself to the kingdom of God. This world matters. You're going to be okay. And what will help you understand that more than anything is if you start with the ending. It's the best way to begin. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for this study you've given us in Revelation. Lord, may it plant seeds in all of our lives for years to come to live for something bigger than just ourselves. In the knowledge that it is not even something we have to earn, but you give it to us freely because you love us. Lord, would you do that for us? Sow it in our souls. In Jesus' name, amen.